Welcome to the Marion Road Christian Church Podcast. Marion Road exists to glorify God through worship, sharing the good news, making and developing disciples, and serving others. I don't want to sound irreverent, which I'm sure is a great way to start a sermon, but uh, there are passages in Scripture as we read them that, uh, if we read them with the right eyes, are humorous. We just don't always uh, come at them from that angle or maybe have the eyes to be able to see them in that way. And to be fair, I think that comes from a good place, um, that I'm not trying to knock or anything like that. I think we want to be uh, reverent towards Scripture. It is God's Word, Him communicating to humanity about who He is, about who we are and how we are to live. So we want to come to it with dignity and respect as it deserves, and I, and I fully understand and endorse that. And yet at the same time, because Scripture is literature and it's uh, God communicating to us in a variety of ways by different authors and different types of literature, we find uh, uh, lots of different uh, ways of communicating to us. And one of those ways is humor. And I was reminded of this at camp a few weeks ago. Uh, one night we had a, uh, a late night activity, and every family group was to put on a, a skit based on Daniel chapter 3, the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. And that was the dean's idea. One of those deans was Ben Petrovics, and he's not here today, so I won't complain you know, behind his back to all of you or anything like that. But uh, the catch was that each, each family group had to perform this skit, but each family group had to perform it in a, a different genre. And so the family group that I was helping to lead, we got assigned the genre of comedy. We had to perform the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego being thrown into a furnace as if it was funny. Um, so uh, we, we started, we put it together, and as we were performing the skit, I, I was struck because one of our camper who was playing King Nebuchadnezzar in the story, the bad guy in the story, he uh, really played it up. He essentially threw a temper tantrum on stage. He was rolling around on the ground and, and just doing whatever he could to get a laugh, as any and all teenage boys do. And I'm not going to stand up here and claim that that 15-year-old camper was somehow an, an expert in ancient Hebrew narrative. And yet, as I, at the same time, as I reflected on it later, I thought that you know, when you read through the story of the book of Daniel, those early chapters especially, that's not a bad portrayal of King Nebuchadnezzar that he is pretty egotistical, pretty selfish, pretty concerned with himself, not really all that concerned with anyone else. Really, time and time again, he's a child. And from a certain angle, when we read that story, it can come to us as, as humorous. And I say all of that because the parable of Jesus we're going to be looking at today, I think contains elements that we are supposed to laugh at to a certain extent. We're going to be in Luke chapter 12, if you have a Bible and want to open it up there. We're going to be looking at this parable called the parable of the rich fool. And we'll find a character in this story who thinks he's pretty impressive. I mean, he has this full-on conversation with himself. He's the only human character in this story. Maybe he's having this conversation with himself because that's the only worthy conversation partner he can find. I don't know. And as we read his words here, they come across as absurd and a little humorous. And yet, just because the words here can be played for laughs does not mean there is no serious point being made. 
any good communicator knows the value of getting an audience on your side by, with humor, making the people laugh so that they're on your side so that then you can make the point that you are trying to make. And Jesus is an expert communicator. He does not tell this story just for laughs. He tells us this story so that we might see the folly of the rich fool in this story and at least pause and consider if we are maybe guilty of the same thing. Because the rich fool is looking for security in a place where he will never find it, and that is something we can be danger, in danger of as well. As much as this story might make us laugh, it is a reminder ultimately that in Jesus we have what we need, and what we need will not come anywhere else. This parable comes to us as Jesus is teaching a crowd, and if we read the whole chapter, it might seem like Jesus' thoughts are kind of all over the place, but really he is driving at this core thought of viewing life from the perspective of trusting in God first and foremost, and warning his listeners of the dangers that await them if they fail to do that. And in the midst of that teaching, he gets interrupted by a man who is having a family dispute and wants Jesus to settle it for him. And Jesus responds to him, although probably not in the way that this man was expecting, and in that, Jesus exposes the heart of the issue for this man he's speaking to and for us as well. And as he does that, he shows us the problem then, the problem in this story, which I think should then cause us to look at what the problem is now in us and ultimately call us to look at how Jesus is what we need, whether then or now. So let me read our text for us. You can follow along in your Bible or you can see the words on the screen, Luke 12. Verses 13 to 21. Someone in the crowd said to him, said to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, Man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Then he said to them, Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones, and there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool. This very night, life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich towards God. We don't get the backstory of what is going on that causes this man to come to Jesus and ask him to intervene in this family dispute. Uh, we know that in the ancient world, the uh, inheritance... Uh, the responsibility of dividing it up fell to the oldest sibling, that the oldest uh, son would get a larger portion of that inheritance and then he would be responsible for dividing it up amongst his siblings. So the fact that this man comes to Jesus at all seems to suggest that he's not the oldest sibling and he thinks he's not getting a fair deal from his older brother. But notice as he comes to Jesus, he doesn't ask Jesus to be a neutral third party. 
He doesn't say to Jesus, hey, you know, we're having a dis- little disagreement. My brother and I, we're not really seeing eye to eye. We don't know who's right or wrong. Would you come and sort things out for us? This man comes to Jesus and says, I'm right. My brother's wrong. He won't listen to me. I need you to go pass that message on to him for me to get his head screwed on straight. And we're never told why or how. But Jesus sees something bigger going on here than a family dispute about inheritance. And he jumps to that bigger issue. Because there's a heart issue on display here of desiring possessions over people. This man wants Jesus to jump to his defense. Jesus instead warns him about the danger of greed. Apparently, Jesus can see something that we can't and can see this man is trying to get is not just trying to get his fair share of an inheritance. He is trying to find life through abundance. And that leads Jesus to tell a story. A story of a rich farmer who has an abundant harvest and faces the problem of not having space to store all that he has taken in. If you have your Bible open in front of you still, you can see in verse 17, this man has this conversation with himself, trying to work out a solution to this good problem he has encountered. And and not only notice that he is talking to himself, but that really he, he seems to be the only thing that matters in his world. He's standing by himself, looking at this harvest, wondering what he's going to do, and if you look at his words, he says, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Well, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns, and I will build bigger barns, and then I will store my surplus in them, and then I will say to myself that I can enjoy life. And if we're listening to the words of Jesus, we can catch the humor. Because there's no way this man is as responsible for his success as he thinks he is. In verse 16, Jesus says, The ground of this man yielded a harvest. He did nothing to bring it about. It was a gift from God. In all likelihood, it was brought in by labor he had hired. He hasn't lifted a finger for this harvest. He says he is the one who's going to have to tear down these barns and build bigger barns. In all likelihood, he is going to hire the work done. And then he says that he is the person, the sole person, who's going to enjoy his abundance, his success. Once these bigger barns get built, he'll be happy, he'll be content, he'll sit back and enjoy all he has accomplished. And I think at this point we are supposed to be rolling our eyes, we're supposed to be uh, stunned at someone who could be this self-centered, this unaware of their surroundings, this uh, dense about how the world actually works. And yet God is not laughing. If you can picture this scene as if it was a play, this this man is standing on stage by himself going on and on about all he has accomplished and how great he is and how great the future will be. And the moment he stops speaking, God's voice comes from off stage with the divine verdict, you fool. Now it's worth reminding ourselves that biblically, A fool is not someone who is unintelligent. It is someone who lives as if the reality of who God is has no bearing on their life. So in a passage like Psalm 14.1 that says, The fool says in his heart there is no God. The point being made there is not that someone who denies the existence of God is automatically less intelligent than someone who does acknowledge the existence of God. The point being made there is that to live as if there is no God 
who rules over all things, who has no final, to live as if there is no final authority that we are ultimately accountable to, is foolish. And that might sound overly blunt, but if the story of Scripture is right, and God truly is the creator and ruler of all things, and that God has revealed himself to us in Jesus and has offered us life with him, then to live as if that message is not the most important news we will ever receive makes no sense. And that's the point God's verdict makes here. It's not that this man was unintelligent, that he's living as if God does not exist. It's that he has forgotten who God is and who he is in relation to that God. And for that reason, he is a fool. He has forgotten that all of his abundance and the promises it makes cannot deliver him from the threat of death that hangs over all humanity. The one who dies with the most stuff still dies. Now the point of God's interjection there in verse 20 is not that the first time someone starts to think a little more highly of themselves than they should, that God shows up and zaps them, calls them a fool, and that's the end of it. The point is that no matter how much abundance someone might have, that abundance cannot save them from death. This man thought he had really made something of himself. He had everything he was ever going to need, and from a human perspective, that might have been true, but from the perspective of God, he was a mortal human being who, despite all of his success and accomplishments, would die and would not enjoy these good things he was saving for himself. His stuff could not save him from death. And that's where we see the problem Jesus is addressing in this parable. The problem then is there's never enough. The world Jesus was a part of had a clear separation between the haves and the have-nots. Most people in Jesus' day were peasants on the lower classes of society who made their living scraping by day after day by working in the fields of the haves, working in the fields of the small class of wealthy landowners who had a great deal of all of the wealth and things like that. And if you can picture that you were a member of the the have-nots, so to speak, it would be pretty easy to reach the conclusion that there was such a thing as enough. That as you were laboring in the fields of the wealthy day after day, you could look at them and their comfort and their peace and their security and think to yourself, man, one day, if I can just get this debt paid down a little bit more, then I could start saving a little bit. And after a few years of saving a little bit, then I might have enough that I I could buy some of my own land instead of having to work on someone else's, expand my operation. And then slowly, surely, eventually, maybe one day we would have enough. Maybe I, we could, my family could make this transition from the have-nots to the haves and we could hire people to work for us instead of having to work for others and then life would be easy and then we could enjoy the good life. If we only had a little more, we would be secure and Jesus says it's not true. Even for a person who has it all, for a person who has everything they will ever need for their long-term comfort, they will still meet the same end as the rest of humanity. Jesus looks at this man who has come to him wanting an inheritance dispute settles, and Jesus says, it's not enough. Whatever you're looking through, looking for through that inheritance, it will not give you the life, the peace, the security, the comfort that you think it will problem then is that there's never enough and we have the same problem today 
we can read this story and laugh at the rich fool all we want. I mean, he's so self-centered, so egotistical. We don't want to be like that. We're smart enough people to know that. But at the same time, as we read this story closely, we probably have to admit that his line of thinking makes sense, and that fact should scare us. We would probably do the same thing if we were him. I mean, we might not do it in the same way. We might not tear down our old barns completely. I mean, that seems a little over the top. We would build additions on the barns that we already have. I mean, that just makes good sense. But we would definitely want to expand our operation to accommodate our success. We can sympathize with the rich fool. And that fact should make us uneasy. Because we are sold the lie every day that if we just had a little more, we would be content. You just need to buy this. You just need to move here. You just need to vacation there. You just need to watch or listen or read that. And then life will make sense. Life will have meaning. You'll be happy. You'll be content. Everything will be okay. We are told constantly that there is such a thing as enough. We're just not there yet. But if we play our cards right with the right investments and long-term planning, eventually we will get there and we will be those who are healthy and wealthy and wise and are always having a good time and have lives that are meaningful. But the problem is we never get there. No matter how much we have, we are always painfully aware that there is someone else out there who has a little more and a, a little more success and that knowledge gnaws at us. And we're sold the message again that maybe we're just not there yet. And we find ourselves less and less satisfied. We're we're told that, sure, you know, you were told that if you got to where you are right now, then you would be happy. And now you're here and you're not happy. But that doesn't mean the system's broken. It must mean you, you just need to go one more rung up the ladder and the cycle starts again and it leaves us more broken than we were before. And the message of Jesus says now, just as much as it says then, that life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. Our stuff will never give us the peace it promises. And yet that does not stop us from trying. A few weeks ago, Whitney and I had to come our uh, wedding registry and I was reminded of the quote from the comedian Jim Gaffigan he says wedding registries are a great way to say to people you don't have to get us anything but when you do make sure it's one of these things I think it's right and it's this weird psychological thing because if we are being honest there are very few things in the world that I actually need And if we're being honest, there are even fewer things in the world that I actually need that I don't already have. And yet that's not the message fed to us by our world. And I'm walking around Menards trying to decide what should go on a wedding registry, and I'm thinking thoughts like, do I need a drill press? Is that that like a thing I'm ever going to need in this life? When was the last time I had to weld something? Maybe I need a welder. And maybe someone will buy that for us as a wedding gift. And we're being honest. I'm never going to need a drill press or a welder. And if I ever do, I'm calling Chad Binger before I do anything. (laughs) And yet there's something in our minds that says maybe it's not enough. Maybe there's something out there that I'm missing out on. Maybe life isn't quite complete yet. And if I just bought a little more stuff, then life would be meaningful. 
And the message of Jesus continues to say that life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. Because the one who dies with the most stuff still dies. All our success and wealth cannot save us from death. It might be able to push it off for some time, to be fair. I mean, you can buy good health insurance if you have enough money. You can buy good medical care, things like that. I understand that. It might mean that if we're successful enough, we have memorials built in our honor, streets named after us, whatever it might be, so that once we are gone, people remember that we were here. But it doesn't change the end. The last time I checked, the statistics are holding pretty steady that one out of every one person dies. The promises given to us by our world cannot solve that problem. As Jesus says, life still does not consist in an abundance of possessions. So if death is the riddle that stuff can't solve, where do we find a solution? Well, before I try to put together a response in light of Jesus' words here, I'd like to borrow some, some words from what is known as the Heidelberg Catechism. Now, the Heidelberg Catechism was put together in Heidelberg, Germany in 1563 by a group of church leaders who were desiring to put together a series of questions and answers that they could use to teach new followers of Jesus the essentials of the faith. And I'm not endorsing everything you would find if you read through the entire Heidelberg Catechism necessarily, but I think the way it begins is an extremely powerful antidote to the message that we are fed every day that a little more would be enough. The beginning of the Heidelberg Catechism, the first question is, what is your only comfort in life and death? And the answer to that question is that I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. That truth delivers us from the problems of never having enough. It delivers us from the power of death. Jesus is our solution. Jesus is what we need. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. Life consists in following the one who conquered death. The problem exposed by this parable is not that all abundance is bad. The problem exposed by this parable is not that anyone wanting to have a successful business is evil. The problem of this parable exposes, the, exposes is the assumption that abundance brings security. Life doesn't come through abundance. Even if we have everything figured out with more money than we'd ever be able to spend, there is no guarantee we will be able to live long enough to enjoy any of it because stuff can't solve the problem of death. We don't need more stuff. We need the one who has come to defeat the enemy of death for all time so that we might have life with him. And so instead of trusting in ourselves, in our wealth, in our stuff, in our success, whatever it might be, we trust in Jesus and allow that to be the lens through which we look at ourselves, our stuff, and our world. And when we do that, we find the solution to our worries. If you keep reading Luke chapter 12, you'd find that the next passage is Jesus talking about worry. Jesus points to the birds of the air and the flowers of the field, and he says, look at them, they don't, they don't labor, they don't toil, they don't spin, and yet they are sustained because God cares for them. And God cares for you far more than he cares for birds or flowers 
and therefore you don't have to worry. And he continues from there and says that not only do you not have to worry, but you can be generous towards others. You can seek the kingdom of God above all else because we know God cares for us and will deliver us into eternal life. And that is the life that opens up for us when we live as if Jesus is the solution instead of living as if our stuff is the solution. And as we do that, we find the life that our stuff promises but can never deliver in the place we were actually supposed to find it to begin with. And we find that life through doing the thing Jesus accuses the rich fool in this parable of not doing, and that is being rich towards God. Now, that's kind of an odd expression, but my guess is we all have areas of life that we are rich towards. Areas of life where we act as if money is not an object, either because we think it's really important or it really matters or we think it gives us meaning. Probably none of us would consider ourselves rich. It always seems like whatever your definition of rich is, it's a little more than what you currently have. But if we were to be honest, if we were to sit down with our bank statements, we could point to things we are rich towards. And those things are rarely bad things, but they do tend to reveal where our true priorities lie. And in reflecting on it this week, I realize that I tend to be rich towards books. If you don't believe me, go down to my office later. And I can try to justify it all I want and say, you know, I need books. I have to study for my job. I have to be up to date on things. I need to do this and that. And that is, is fair to a certain extent, and it makes sense. And yet at the same time, it becomes a problem when books on shelves are supposed to bring significance and meaning. And I don't know what it is for you. But being rich towards fill-in-the-blank will not bring the success, the fulfillment, the meaning it is supposed to. Those sorts of things can only be brought to us through Jesus' death and resurrection. The rich fool is rich towards himself. There is no expense to be spared when it comes to his own comfort. And instead of that sort of life that always leaves us wanting more and never quite getting there, Jesus calls us to be rich towards God. And some of you might be reaching for your wallet at this point because you think I'm going to try to steal it from you before church is over today. But that is not my point. My worry is not that you're not putting enough in the offering box. My worry is that you're holding on to something and expecting, you to, expecting it to bring you the life and security that is only available when we grab hold of Jesus. The problem with this story is not that the rich fool had stuff, but that he held on to it as if it was going to save him. In the words of a friend of mine, Jesus is not concerned with you having stuff. He's worried about your stuff having you. And that's the heart of the issue. And it's the issue we have to deal with if we are going to take hold of the life Jesus desires for us. The takeaway from this parable, my point this morning, is not that you can never expand your business or add on to your house or buy a bigger car, but the point is that when, when we do those things, we need to stop and consider if, we actually, if they're necessary or if we're doing them because we think it'll bring us meaning. Because our world will feed us the message that we need those things if we want our life to matter, and the message of Jesus shows us different priorities. 
The message of Jesus frees us from focusing on ourselves, frees us from the need for more, frees us from looking for eternal meaning and significance in temporary things so that we can be generous. We can be generous, not because God demands it of us, but because we live with an awareness that our stuff is never going to bring us the happiness it promises. And therefore, we don't need to treat it as if it matters as much as it claims to matter. We can live a life that is rich towards God. A life that gives him priority. Because that is the sort of life we were created for. So our response to this text comes straight from the words of Jesus, although applying it probably looks a little different for each of us, and that is to be rich towards God. Be rich towards God. Not because there's a secret system out there that if the more you give, the more God will like you, and the more life will go your way, but be rich towards God because you were created to have life from him. Not to have life from your stuff. So live in such a way that your stuff doesn't get in the way of the life you were created for. And I can't proclaim from this stage what applying that looks like for each and every one of us as much as I might like to. Responding to this might just be something really practical of saying, I just need to sit down and make a budget and stick to it so that I can make this the priority that it needs to be. That might be it, and that would be a good thing. But my guess is, for a lot of us, it probably goes deeper than that. Because this is ultimately not an issue of our wallets, it's an issue of our hearts. Being rich towards God begins first and foremost with giving Him ourselves. So maybe for some of us, that means that we need to consider following Jesus, even if it's for the first time. Maybe for some of us, we have things in order to be generous with ourselves and with our stuff, to be rich towards God. It's just a matter of taking that step, of actually believing that God can be trusted and stepping out in faith like that. And if that's you, I would encourage you to take time, even if it's before the service ends today, to dream, to ask God what He desires from you and what He desires to do through you whether it's just with yourself, with your spouse, with your family, whatever it might be, so that you might take the next step of experiencing life with our God. If you don't know what that looks like, if you have questions, you're unsure, that's what I am here in this building for. The rest of the time today, the rest of the staff, the elders, we would love nothing more than to sit with you to talk, to listen, to pray, to see what God is doing in your life and how you can respond to it and take the next step in your walk. Because God has already given us everything we will ever need in the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And that means we do not have to hold on to the rest of the things of this world as if they are going to deliver us, but can use those things to bless others, to bless the world in the name of Jesus. Jesus is what we need. So trust in him and follow where he leads. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that in Christ we have life. That although we deserved death, you came so that we might be made new. So Father, as we read a text like this, we are reminded of of all you've done for us and the call upon us to respond. Not because... Um, it will earn us favor or anything like that, but because it is the only rational way to respond to what all you have done for us. 
So, Father, I ask that right now, for every single one of us, you would give us wisdom. Through the presence of your Spirit, would you help us see what it looks like to respond to your teaching where we are right now, even this morning. Father, we know that you are near to us, that you've given us your Holy Spirit. So help us respond appropriately to the words of your Son, so that we might walk in faith with you. We are confident that you, are, that you desire to work in us, so Father, we give you ourselves. And ask that you would grow us more and more into the image of your Son. It's in his name that I pray. Amen. We hope that you are encouraged and challenged by this message given by our own senior pastor, Monty French.